The Clone Podcast. Change your way. Welcome to The Quo Podcast. I'm Sasha Yurach. Whilst Australia has high cannabis prevalence rates, our laws focus on a punitive approach rather than harm reduction. It is a criminal offence to drive if there is any THC detected in your blood system. This means those seeking pain management with medical marijuana are placed in a difficult position to be in pain and independent or pain free but with restrictions. Recent research on cannabis use whilst driving suggests Australia's current drug driving laws need to be reconsidered. I'm joined by Dr Thomas Arkell, postdoctoral research fellow at Swinburne University in Melbourne and co-author of last December's landmark study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. You conducted these trials last December in the Netherlands. Can you tell us a little bit more about this study? So this was a randomised clinical trial which we conducted with healthy volunteers. Um, the reason we did this in the Netherlands is because this is the only place in the world where we're able to conduct on-road driving research. So the way this works is we have participants come in, uh, we give them a drug, in this case, um, different types of cannabis or placebo, and we measure a range of things uh, with the main outcome measure being driving performance. So the way this works is participants go out for one hour um, drives, these are 100 kilometer drives on a public highway in traffic, uh, and they're accompanied by a driving instructor. So they're kind of keeping an eye on things the whole time and, and making sure that nothing's going uh, wrong and they can take over if need be. Uh, and we essentially look in a very naturalistic way at how people are driving uh, while under the influence of, uh, of a certain substance, in this case, cannabis. So there were, there were three active conditions. One where people received THC-dominant cannabis. So this is cannabis, flower, plant material um, that has mainly THC and very little CBD. Uh, then we had cannabis that contained equal amounts of THC and CBD. So this is normally called a one-to-one -one or a balanced product. Uh, and then CBD-dominant cannabis. So this has um, the same amount of um, CBD. The amount of CBD was equal to the amount of THC in the other conditions, but there was no THC present in this one. So yeah, THC-dominant, THC-CBD equivalent, and CBD-dominant. For those of us who don't know, I mean, look, there's a lot of ac acronyms here, but what is the difference between THC and CBD? So THC is the main intoxicating part of cannabis. That's the bit that gets you stoned. That's the bit that most people are familiar with. Um, but there's well over 100 cannabinoids in the plant. Um, THC is just one of them. So CBD is another compound that's often present in high amounts. Um, this is typically what's present in high amounts in hemp, so in, in fiber type um, cannabis plants. CBD is not intoxicating, so it doesn't get you stoned. It is psychoactive, so it does produce uh, effects in the brain and this is why it has uh, promising medical effects for some people. So people who seek uh, CBD oils for, for pain relief, say for example cancer patients or other sufferers of chronic pain do lean towards CBD oils if I'm not mistaken? So not always. People in chronic pain often use uh, products containing THC as well. Um, THC does have quite strong pain relieving properties. It really depends on the person and the condition as to what kind of product people will be using. But there's certainly plenty of people using medical cannabis in Australia that are using products containing um, THC as well as CBD. 
um, childhood epilepsy, where CBD is, is the, the, the primary cannabinoid that's been used for treatment, because THC um, can actually make things worse. So there are certain treatments where people are just using CBD, but for some things like chronic pain, people do often have THC in there as well. So in a nutshell, what did your findings of driving under the influence of cannabis reveal? So, so look, there was two driving tasks. We did this firstly at 40 minutes after people had vaporized cannabis, and then again at four hours. And what we found was that in both the THC dominant and the THC CBD equivalent conditions, um, people were impaired while driving during that first task. So from 40 minutes uh, to about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes. Um, so people were impaired. The level of impairment we saw was very similar to what you would expect to see in a driver with a blood alcohol concentration of 0.05. So the legal limit here. Um, by four hours, so that during that second drive, which took place from four to five hours, that impairment had disappeared. So there was no statistically significant difference between people's driving performance under placebo conditions and under the conditions when they had received uh, one of the two THC-containing products. Now, when people just received CBD by itself, so the CBD dominant condition, we didn't notice any impairment at all. So there was no difference between CBD and placebo. Well, this has huge implications for Australia's current legislative approach towards driving under the influence of cannabis. Um, so even if you have CBD traceable in your system, is that still criminalised? And what are Australia's current laws surrounding the detection of cannabis in your blood system? It's not an offence to have um, CBD by itself in your system. The issue is that lots of CBD products have small amounts of THC in them. So they're allowed to contain up to a small amount of THC uh, by law. And the issue is whether that small amount of THC may be enough to trigger a positive roadside uh, drug test. Uh, the laws really relate to THC. So it's a criminal offence to drive with any detectable concentration of THC in your system. So there's, there's sort of two offences here. There's one which is driving with the presence of THC and then there's a separate offence for driving uh, while impaired, so driving under the influence, and that's if an officer can sort of observe and, and determine that your driving uh, uh, did actually sort of seem impaired, whereas the first offence is just really, is there any THC in your system or not? Mm. And, that's, and that's what the roadside drug testing is targeting. I mean, not just cannabis, but for, for other drugs as well, amphetamine, MDMA, methamphetamine, uh, cocaine in New South Wales. But... Uh, THC is, is yeah, one of those drugs that roadside drug testing is, is primarily targeting. How long does THC stay in your blood system? This one's a really tricky one. Um, it really depends on your body, uh, how much you weigh, how much fat you have, how much you use cannabis. Uh, it depends on a whole lot of factors, and that means it's very hard to uh, say exactly how long um, THC can be detected in your blood. Typically, if, if you don't use cannabis and you were just to use it as a one-off, and you used a small amount, THC may be detectable for a couple of days, depending on how sensitive uh, the, the analytical equipment being used to quantify that is. If you're a heavy user and you're using multiple times a day, which is the case with a lot of medical cannabis users, uh, THC can be detected in your blood for quite a lot longer than a few days. It can be, can be up to a week or two weeks in extreme cases, um, depending on how, uh, how sensitive the, the equipment is. Then, then you also have THC's metabolites, so these are the products that THC gets converted to in the body. Um, so for example, it, it, uh, THC carboxy, which is a, an inactive metabolite that THC is converted to, uh, that can be detected for weeks after use and that can be detected even for months in urine. 
So the THC can be detected for, for a long time after someone last used it. Why is your research so important then? You know, I mean, in my mind, I think it's that loss of autonomy and the fact that medical cannabis users have to grapple with not being able to drive anymore. I mean, this is a huge issue uh, for patients and the fact there's such a mismatch between that window of impairment and the window of detection uh, is, is, a, is a real concern. And it's simply not, uh, it's not a rational policy for someone using uh, a medicine that's legally prescribed. So there's a whole lot of other medicines people can use, benzodiazepines, opioids, um, even antidepressants, antihistamines, all these things are known to impair driving as well. But it's a legal defense if you're using these products uh, under prescription. And you know whether you decide to drive or not is the choice of the consumer. People are trusted to make sensible decisions about whether they will drive or not. Um, if you're feeling like you can't drive, then the law says you shouldn't drive, but there's no uh, sort of legal cutoff there for how much of that drug you have in your system if you're using it legally. So patients are in uh, a tricky situation, like you say, where if, if someone is using uh, a medical cannabis, pro medical cannabis product that contains THC, the advice they get is you, uh, well, not advice, the instruction is you cannot drive while you're using uh, this product. If they do decide to drive, um, then they're breaking the law if they get caught uh, and they're found to have any amount of THC in their system. So it, it's, a, it's a really tricky situation. Like you say, this is a real problem for people, particularly people living in remote or rural areas that really rely on driving for mobility and quality of life. Um, and so this is, I, I suppose, something that we're trying to address with our research. This is really a first step. The next step is, is to run these kind of studies again in patients. But what our findings show is that the effects of cannabis um, last uh, for a far shorter uh, window of time than that window of time within which they can actually be detected by using, for example, roadside drug testing or in blood. So we saw in that study that by four hours, there was no difference between THC and placebo. This was in uh, healthy volunteers who use cannabis occasionally. The evidence we have suggests that people that use cannabis more regularly, um, so for example, medical cannabis users, people that may be using it a couple of times a day, uh, are actually even less sensitive to those effects. They become tolerant to those effects. They're often using lower doses because their aim is not to be intoxicated, it's not to be stoned, it's to achieve, it's to use the lowest possible dose to achieve symptom relief. So it may be possible that um, medical cannabis users may be even less impaired than that sort of uh, level of impairment we saw in that study, which already wasn't particularly high. It was, like I said, similar to the sort of, uh, the sort of impairment you can see in a driver with a BAC of one. So we accept that, that legal limit for alcohol. We accept that sort of level of impairment as acceptable for alcohol. But that's a very different standard to what we uh, are applying to cannabis. It's interesting because you, when we did speak prior to this interview, you mentioned that there is a great uh, pushback for drug law reforms here in Australia, but particularly across the state governments. This was my experience previously uh, in, in New South Wales. So now I'm, I'm down here in Victoria. Uh, I don't have too much experience here. I've, I've really just started here, but I know um, we were very interested in having New South Wales police come to the table and um, the RTA or RMS or, you know, the, the state transport, the, the roads authority um, to have a conversation about this and go, is roadside drug testing uh, a useful way to manage and mitigate the risks associated 
uh, with, with driving off the influence of cannabis. Um, but there was no sort of interest in having any kind of conversation about this. The, the messaging is very much, um, if you use drugs that's illegal, these drugs are dangerous, um, they can impair your driving, they, you know, they, they can, there's huge dangers, I suppose, associated with people driving with the, with the presence of the drugs in the system. And so that's it. That's kind of the end of the story. And we're going to keep on ramping up the roadside drug testing uh, year after year. So it's very much a zero tolerance approach to, to, to managing road safety. I mean, and why is that the case, given that the evidence that you have found suggests otherwise? I think these laws are, are really a remnant of a, of a time when cannabis was altogether illegal. Um, but that's changing. You know, we have legal medical cannabis in Australia. Um, cannabis is quickly being legalized all over the world. I mean, you know, a lot of US states now are now have legal cannabis. Canada does, Uruguay, um, Mexico is set to vote on it very soon. Um, so these things are changing. New Zealand just very narrowly um, voted uh, against legalizing it in a referendum last year. But you can see that things are quite clearly changing. And I think the issue we have here is that our roadside drug testing laws sort of stuck back in an era um, when cannabis was altogether illegal. And that's, that's simply not the situation we have these days. Now, of course, cannabis isn't yet legal in Australia, so there's some argument um, for that. But the real issue is that these laws don't seem to be actually improving road safety. I mean, I'm, I'm yet to see any evidence that all this roadside drug testing has led to a decrease in the number of drivers testing positive for cannabis uh, or a reduction in the number of crashes uh, in which cannabis is a contributing factor. The number of crashes in general has been declining steadily uh, for a long time. And uh, a, a study that just came out this year um, suggested that uh, cannabis, the, the, the prevalence of cannabis in drivers involved in crashes has remained stable over the last 10 years. So all this additional testing doesn't seem to be actually having uh, any positive effects on, on what it's supposed to be doing. If it really boils down to morality then, you know, one, <laughs> one could argue that there's a double standard with tobacco and, and alcohol being legal. So, so why are substances like alcohol and tobacco, given as we're knowledgeable of the long-term detrimental effects of alcohol and tobacco, why are substances like, like th these still, still legal? Uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. And I think that's something that um, a lot of people are starting to grapple with now. Um, you know, alcohol, the, the social harms of alcohol use uh, and, and the harms to, to the user uh, are far greater in terms of the, the, the cost to society and its public health impacts than those associated with cannabis. I think uh, that's uh, incredibly clear. Now, tobacco, there's probably an even stronger link, and yet you can still buy the two things uh, legally, over the counter, wherever you like. Um, it's 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 a it's a crazy situation, I and mean, I, I don't think that makes any sense. I think all this prohibition uh, against cannabis was was part of a very concerted effort by um, someone called Harry Anslinger, who headed the the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in the U.S. And he he held this position for I think almost thirty years, from the, the thirties through to the sixties, and he basically took it upon himself to to demonize cannabis and to prohibit its use. And that, that really is what led to um, the UN Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs and all the restrictions that we have on cannabis today. I mean, you could buy cannabis uh, tinctures and oils in pharmacies in the early and 1900s. It's quite a recent phenomenon that 
it's it's been turned into this illegal drug that, that's sort of been thought to be terribly harmful. Now that's not to say that cannabis is without harms. That's that's completely untrue. Um, any drug has harms, um, but with alcohol, uh, I, I suppose tobacco that the laws are changing. Now in Australia, those tax rates keep going up and up, and the aim is to eventually eradicate it. With alcohol, though, the laws respect the the freedoms and the autonomy of um, citizens to do what they want to themselves and to, to do something that's pleasurable. And they do that because most people can use it in moderation and responsibly. Um, and so you kind of, it's, it's a sort of a balance between, you know, managing public health uh, impacts and also respecting the, the freedoms of the citizens of, of the country. Just going back a little, and I'm quite curious about this and I'm sure uh, some of our other listeners might be interested as well, but what is the process of, or, or the current process of acquiring medical cannabis here in Australia? A couple of um, systems or processes that you can go through. The most common one is through the special access scheme, um, the B category. So there's two categories, an A and a B one, and these are managed by the Therapeutic Goods Administration here. So most patients are accessing cannabis through um, SASB, the special access scheme. And the way that works is uh, a patient has their, their case or their application for medical cannabis assessed um, on a case-by-case basis by the TGA. So a doctor, you know, maybe a specialist, it might be a GP, puts in an application on behalf of a patient, says this person's presenting with these and these clinical symptoms, they haven't responded to this and this drug, I want them to be able to access cannabis basically. And that allows them then to access any one of a number of um, cannabis medicines that are available here in Australia. They have to go through this process because they're all unregistered products in Australia. And none of the none of the cannabis products are on the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods. So it's sort of a, a way of, of getting around the normal, um, it's slightly different to the normal sort of prescription process you would go through for, for a drug in a pharmacy. But in effect, it works the same way. You'd be given a script and you would go to a pharmacy and you would collect this, but they're, they're uh, they're unregistered medicines, which basically means they haven't been evaluated by the TGA for quality, efficacy, and, and a whole lot of things because that's a it's an expensive and it's a difficult process to go through for companies. But that, that, so that's the main way that um, people would get access to it. There's also an authorized prescriber scheme where uh, a doctor may be able to prescribe cannabis for a, a certain class or group of patients, and that's sort of a more um, kind of like a, a collective thing where they're allowed to prescribe for multiple people. But yeah, SASB is the most common way that people go about it. So it, it basically involves people finding a doctor who understands a bit about medical cannabis and, and probably and, and has a good sense of that patient's history and that they have maybe haven't responded well to prior drugs or that they're, um, you know, they, they think that cannabis may be useful in managing their, their symptoms. Um, and that would normally then trigger, trigger that process. Let's just point our audience to other parts of the world. I mean, what, what are other countries' stances on cannabis use? Um, so, I, I mean, North America is probably the most interesting case because that's where everything's happening and it's, it's moving very quickly. Um, Canada has had medical cannabis for a while and uh, now they've had legal, legal recreational cannabis for a couple of years. So there's dispensaries everywhere. This is much the same as in most US states now, where they do have medical. Um, you get your medical license. It's not particularly hard to get. And that allows you to go and buy 
cannabis products from a whole range of dispensaries that are scattered all around the place. You can buy it online and probably have it shipped to your house the next day. Uh, there's a very well set up system that allows people to access medical cannabis very easily. Now Canada has also added on recreational to that recently, which means it's very easy, it, very easy excuse me, for anyone over 18 to access cannabis. Um, it's still a little bit cheaper if you are accessing medical cannabis. Um, I think there's some subsidy by the government, but if you're accessing it recreationally, you pay a little bit more. But it, it essentially means that anyone that wants to can access cannabis freely, like the way you would buy alcohol from a bottle shop. So what do you think then that Australian governments can learn from countries like North America? It, it's quite interesting because Canada very openly um, said when they were legalising recreational, that this was sort of an experiment. Um, they don't really know how this was going to turn out, but clearly the current model of prohibition wasn't working, that lots of people were still just accessing cannabis through a black market. Uh, these are unregulated products that um, you know, are funnel funneling money into, into crime. Um, so they wanted to eradicate that, and this was an experiment in seeing what it would look like to have a regulated model of cannabis access. Um, I think what we can learn from that, that, that there's good and there's bad bits. I think Australia is very hesitant to go down a model like that or the US where it's sort of a free for all and, and anyone can access it whenever they like. Um, I think we're still waiting. It's going to be a while before we really see what the long-term effects of this are. It'll probably take 10 years before we, we really have good trend data on what the effects uh, of legalization have been. Uh, for me personally, the effects on road safety are a really interesting one. So say 10 years after legalization, uh, have there been more crashes in which cannabis was a factor? Are there more drivers who are driving while they're high? So all these questions like this, and there's some data on this that's coming out, but it tends to be quite contradictory. Sometimes they show there's been you know, no increase or there's been a decrease in um, crashes. Um, some states have found a decrease in alcohol-related fatalities, and people are drinking less alcohol and using more cannabis. Uh, other reports have suggested a slight increase in um, crashes or incidents in which cannabis is detected. So as to what we can learn, I, I think we're still waiting to see. But I think really the approach there has been, well, the current system isn't working. People are smoking weed anyway. So how can we make it safer for them and how can we regulate it? So we're bringing in uh, revenue, tax revenue, and also making sure that we're, we're taking people out of that, that black market and we're taking uh, all that money out of, of crime and, and dealers and turning it into a regulated market that the government has some control over. That scenario is a win-win for everyone. Which brings me to why do we need an evidence-based approach to drug driving laws, but also just drug law reforms as a whole? I think this is essential. I think as citizens, we, we have a right to expect that our laws are going to be rational and evidence-based um, and not based on someone's ideas about something being right or wrong. Uh, I think particularly with, with, these, with these road safety laws, um, if the aim of them is to minimise harms and to make sure that um, people are being protected from dangerous drivers who are affected, um, you know, I, I think everyone would respect that as, as being an important aim and, a, and a, a sort of fairly fundamental thing to work towards. But then you've got to say, well, if the current approach isn't actually meeting those aims and we've been doing this for you know, more than 15 years now. And if it's not helping us to achieve those aims, then we should be able to go, well, how can we rethink that? How can we come up with laws that 
are based on evidence and are responding to the most recent scientific developments and to, to improve things. I mean, it's, it seems like a, a sort of crazy situation to just keep on you know, doing the same thing, even though more and more evidence is building that shows that that's not a productive or necessarily the right way to address the situation. So I think it's the same, it's the same with medicine. You, know, you expect that when you go and buy um, something from a pharmacy, that you're being given it because there's evidence that proves that it's going to be beneficial for you. You know, if, if you're, uh, it's, it's like if, if your doctor was to give you something and you went and got it from the pharmacy and he found out that it wasn't based on evidence, but just on what the doctor sort of felt like giving you that day, uh, you would feel a little cheated. And I think it's, it's sort of a, a similar, uh, a, a similar thing really where we, we have the right and we should expect that the laws that govern things like this are based on evidence that they're rational um, and that's, we are also able to contribute to them in a meaningful way. Dr. Akel, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much.